In your Bibles this morning, will you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11? Luke, chapter 11. This morning, our focus is on the end of the chapter from verse 37 through verse 54. Luke 11:37 says, "When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, "Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside, you be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge, You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the Son of God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his wisdom, his truth for the way that he was able to shine his piercing light on the hearts and the souls of men. And Father, in this passage, Jesus reveals to us the danger that is to focus on the outward without taking care of the inner man. Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word today. May your spirit open our hearts and change our hearts to receive your truth. And Father, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We are busy people. We have our organizers, our daytimers. We have our smartphones with our reminders and calendars. We have computers. And for many of us, 
life is nothing more than a big checklist or a calendar. Some of us, myself included, wouldn't know what to do if we didn't have these checklists or a calendar because it keeps our life organized. Now, that's fine when it comes to all of our tasks and duties in life, but Christianity is not a checklist. Christianity is not a checklist of things to tick off and say, I've done this and I've done that. The great temptation is to turn the Christian life into a checklist of religious practices or religious prohibitions. The problem with that is that that can easily degenerate into an external display of right behavior without having any affection in our hearts for God. Coming to church does not prove that you love God. Giving in the offering plate or in the offering box does not prove that you love God. Wearing the right clothes does not prove that you love God. Reading the Bible does not prove that you love God. Praying to God does not prove that you love God. Memorizing the Bible does not prove that you love God. And you sit there and you ask, wow, that's that's a lot of things that have to do with the Christian life. And they do. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, worshiping, those are all things that are a part of the Christian life. But those things in and of themselves do not show or prove that you love God. Because it is possible to do all of those things and not have the love of God in your heart. And the reason I can say that is because that is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees who did all of those things. The Pharisees went to synagogue religiously. The Pharisees read the word of God religiously. They memorized the word of God. They were experts in the word of God. They prayed to God. They wore the right outfits. They they did the right practices. They did all of the religious rituals in the sight of everyone around them. They were righteous and holy people. They did all of those things. They ticked off all of the check marks. But Jesus says of them, you don't have the love of God in your hearts. And so it's possible to do all of these religious things and to not truly love God from the heart. And so don't think that because you're here in church and because you're faithful in church that this sermon is not for you. This sermon is for us. That's who this sermon is for. This sermon is for people who go to church. This sermon is for religious people. This, is, this sermon is for those who do all the religious activities. And so we need all of us to think deeply about what Jesus is saying in this passage. The Pharisees and the scribes were the most religious people of Jesus' day. They were generally well-respected by the people, but when Jesus focused his all-knowing eyes on their hearts as only he could do, what he found on the inside upon examination was actually disease and death. The exact opposite of what the outside suggested. They were like a fit and trim athletic man going to his annual checkup at the doctor only to find out that on the inside, his body is riddled with cancer. That's what the Pharisees were like. On the outside, they looked great. 
but on the inside, their hearts were full of the cancer of sin. And so Jesus confronts them in this opportunity. In the last passage that we looked at in Luke last time, we saw in verse 35 that Jesus told the crowd how important it was to respond to the light of his teaching. In verse 35, Jesus said, See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. In other words, Jesus said, I am shining the light on you. You think you have the light, but you need to be careful and make sure that the light that you think you have is not actually darkness. In other words, Jesus was saying to the people, you need to make sure that you are not spiritually deceived. You're not deceived in your hearts as to what you think you have or who you are. And here's the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is they thought they had the light. Verse 35 is the warning is the exact warning that the Pharisees and scribes needed to hear because they were the ones who thought they had the light, but they were actually living in darkness. After that exchange, verse 37 tells us that one of the Pharisees invited Jesus over for dinner. It says, when Jesus has finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The language of verse 37 suggests that this was a Sabbath meal, uh, perhaps a midday meal, maybe after the morning synagogue gathering. And they would often have like a, a public meal in the home of a rabbi or a teacher that that others were invited to became kind of a a public event. And so they're not just this Pharisee and Jesus here. We can tell from the passage that there are many other people there as well. And so they're here and they're, they're getting ready to sit down at the meal. And it says that Jesus went in and he reclined at the table. There's one problem with that. And that is according to Pharisaic tradition, you had to ceremonially wash your hands before sitting or reclining at the table. Now, did your mom ever fuss at you for not washing your hands before you came to sit down at the table for lunch or dinner? Mine did too, but that's not what this is about. This is not about personal hygiene. This is about religious practices. And this is about the, the levels of tradition and all of the, the extra crossing of T's and dotting of I's that the Pharisees added onto the word of God to show that you were righteous and holy. And so verse 38 says that this Pharisee was surprised. He was aghast at the fact that Jesus, supposedly a rabbi, a teacher, a master of the scriptures, would sit down and prepare for the meal without first washing before he sat down. This Pharisee is offended by this. Jesus knows this. He sees what's in the heart of this Pharisee. There's nothing here that says that the Pharisee actually said anything. But Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so in verse number 39, the Lord says to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now, make sure that we understand that this, this matter of the washing of hands was, it was not a, a neutral thing. For this Pharisee, 
This was a matter of ritual purity before God. And by Jesus not washing, this Pharisee is offended, not personally, but he's offended that this man has not made himself ready, holy before God. So he is deeply offended by this on a a level of righteousness or holiness. Jesus, on the other side, is also offended by the levels of rules and traditions that the Pharisees and scribes have piled on top of the law to burden and weigh people down. And so this is not a neutral thing for Jesus either, which makes me think that he did this on purpose. Sometimes Jesus would do things on purpose just to bring up a matter that he could engage the Pharisees with. And so Jesus doesn't ceremonially wash his hands. He sits down and the Pharisee is amazed. He's aghast. He's appalled by it. And Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're clean on the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. He accuses them of the love of money, of being greedy people. The Pharisees were an amazing bunch. They were, they were kind of like modern day lawyers. The difference is, is that their law was the word of God. It was the law of Moses, the scriptures. But the Pharisees were much like modern day lawyers in the sense that they loved to pile on words and add all kinds of language and add all kinds of legalities to the word of God. And the other thing that made them like modern day lawyers is that they loved finding loopholes in things. And so they knew the law backwards and forwards, mainly because all of these extra additions to the law, they wrote. So they knew the loopholes, they knew the exceptions, and they used them to their own advantage. One example of this is that the Pharisees would take the possessions of their home and their money, and they would, quote unquote, dedicate them to God. And by dedicating them to God, they would treat them as if they belonged to the Lord and therefore not uh, available to give and to help other people with. So at one point, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees and lays into them because they would not even take care of their own family, their own elderly fathers and mothers, because they had set aside possessions and money and resources and said, these are God's. So we can't use them for common purposes. They're holy, even though they're still in their house, but they're God's. So we can't use them to help other people. So they had all these loopholes and exceptions and Jesus calls them out on it and says, you're just greedy. You love money. You love stuff. You're full of wickedness. Verse 40, he says, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. And so Jesus uses the analogy of a cup or a dish and says, what's more important, the outside or the inside? He says, don't you know that the one who made the outside made the inside also? What's more important? Now, if you had a choice, somebody handed you two cups and you were going to put something to eat or drink in one of these cups. And one of the cups was very clean and shiny on the outside. But you take a look on the inside of the cup 
and it's dirty and nasty. So the other cup, it's kind of dirty on the outside, doesn't look that great, but you look on the inside and it looks spick and span, clean. Which one would you rather have to drink or to eat with? If you had a choice, if those are your only two options, you'd take the one that was clean on the inside, wouldn't you? That's where the food's going to go. That's where the drink is going to go. That's where the greatest possibility of contamination is going to be. Jesus says, you got everything backwards. You're focusing on the outside, but it's really the inside that is more important. And so he says, focus on the inside, verse 41. Be generous to the poor. Stop being selfish and greedy and actually care about other people and you'll be clean on the inside. Verse 42, Jesus begins to pronounce woes on the Pharisees. He says in verse 42, woe to you, Pharisees. Now, that might, that language might not be significant for us, but for the Pharisees, for the scribes, the experts in the law, that language would have been incredibly significant because it is the exact same language that the Old Testament prophets used when they rebuked the people of Israel for their pagan idolatry and wickedness. You go back and read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and you'll find that language, woe to you. Oftentimes that language of woe was pronounced on Israel's enemies, Babylon, Assyria, wicked, pagan people, woe to you. And now Jesus takes that language and he applies it to supposedly the most righteous and holy people in their society. Woe to you. God's judgment on you. That's what that means. Woe to you. God's judgment is on you. Because, verse 42, you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. He's saying, you, when you come and you come to the, the synagogue or the temple, you tithe. That's great. And, and you tithe to the nth degree. It would be like someone finding a dollar lying on the, the street on a sidewalk and that person saying, I need to give a dime because I found a dollar on the sidewalk. Or you find a, a quarter. I need to give two and a half cents. Well, I'll, I'll give three cents because you can't give two and a half cents. It's like down to the nitty gritty, the last penny, they were tithing on everything. And yet, Jesus says, you don't even care about your neighbor. You don't care about your neighbor. You don't care about justice. And by justice, it means making sure that that people are receiving justice, that that the poor are being treated fairly, that the orphan, the widows, that they're being taken care of. That's what justice means in the scriptures. So you're not loving God and you're not loving neighbor. It's basically what Jesus is saying in verse 42. So you're doing all of these religious practices, but you're ignoring the two greatest commands. Love God and love neighbor as yourself. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. In other words, Jesus is not throwing out all of these religious practices like tithing. It's a part of Old Testament law. So they were still supposed to tithe. But what was more important is what comes from the heart of love for God and love for for other people. But these Pharisees, they were hypocrites and they were indifferent to the poor and the needy. 
and they chose to follow relatively insignificant matters of the law while ignoring the greatest commands. And Jesus rebukes them for it. In verse 43, he rebukes them for their pride. He says, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, they cared about position. They cared about fame. They cared about prominence. And they, they wanted the, the, the best seats of positions where people could see them and take notice of them. They developed special greetings that they said to one another and they expected other people to say to them when they walked down the street. They cared about the love and the praise of people rather than the love and praise of God. They wanted the praise of men, and so they intentionally set out to get it. It is what motivated many of their actions. And in there, there's a question for us, isn't there? Why do we do the religious practices that we do? Why do we go to church? Why do we pray? Why do we read the scriptures? Why do we give and help one another? If the answer has anything to do with ourselves or what people think about us or the praise that other people might give us, then we're doing it for the wrong motive. The right motive for any of those things is for the love of God and for the glory of God. The Pharisees were doing it all wrong. In verse 44, Jesus pronounces another woe on them and says, you are unmarked graves and people are walking over you without even knowing it. Your tombs, you're dead. You're like a bunch of unmarked graves and people who follow you have no idea that they're standing in a cemetery full of dead people. In other words, you are dead people leading other people to death is what Jesus says to them. The Pharisees who saw themselves as the example of purity are in fact leaders of spiritual uncleanness whose teaching leads other people to death. And so Jesus condemns the Pharisees. And he condemns them also for the influence that they have on others. Verse 45, and I love this. I love verses 45 and verse 46. One of the experts in the law answered him. So there's, there's other people here. There's this Pharisee who invited him over. There's other Pharisees there. But there's also this group of scribes or experts in the law who are also there listening. And this expert in the law takes offense. And he says, Jesus, Master, when you say these things, you are insulting us also. And here's the thing about self-righteous people. And I want us all to think about this and listen to this point. The thing about self-righteous people who criticize others and who judge others, self-righteous people never feel guilty. They feel offended. They don't feel guilty. They feel offended or insulted. This scribe, this expert in the law, he did not feel personal guilt over any of the things that Jesus was saying, even though he was addressing it to them. Instead, he was insulted and offended by it. So people who judge others, who in self-righteousness judge the actions and the behaviors of other people and see them as, see themselves as better than others, they don't feel guilty, they feel offended when people question their holiness or their character. 
And he says, Jesus, when you say these things, you insult us also. And I love verse 46 because Jesus does not say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was offending you. I didn't know I was insulting you. I apologize. He didn't say that at all, did he? In verse 46, he says, okay, woe to you, experts in the law. You're right. I haven't been paying enough attention to you, experts in the law. Let me now direct my shining light on you for a moment. You experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. In this, Jesus is talking about all these rules and traditions and regulations that the Pharisees and the experts in the law placed on people and said, you've got to obey this to be holy. You've got to obey all of these things to be righteous before God. And Jesus says, you pile all these things on them. You can't even do them yourselves. And you, know, you don't do anything to help these people actually live out the word of God. And this is why Jesus, when he comes, he says, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was just bringing them back to the core of the word of God and not all of these rules and traditions that the experts in the law had piled on them. So he says, for one, you're hypocrites because you don't even do these things yourselves and you're, you're uncaring because you don't even help the people that are weighed down with all these things. Verse 47 and 48, Jesus says, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Jesus makes a link between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of his day and all of the rebellious, wicked, ungodly, pagan Israelites that lived during all of those reigns of wicked kings and held them accountable for the death of Isaiah or the death of Jeremiah or the the death of any of these prophets who were killed because they had the boldness to testify the truth of God. He says they killed them. And when you set up monuments or tombs in honor of them, you're basically approving of what they did. You're not honoring them at all. You're, you're in the same line of your ancestors who put them to death. So Jesus says, this is what God said would happen. Verse 49, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. And you know who the greatest of those is? He's standing in front of them right that very moment. As we saw last week, Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus is greater than Jonah. The greatest king, the greatest prophet was right there in front of them. And they would be guilty of the exact same things that their ancestors had done to all of the true prophets before because they would put Jesus to death also. They would kill him. They would persecute him. And then after he was gone, they would then turn their attention on Jesus' apostles. And so we read in Acts chapter six, that uh, chapter seven, that Stephen was put to death. He was stoned, killed 
because he testified the truth to the people of Israel. They treated him just like Jesus and just like all the true prophets before him. John the Baptist, they put to death. They beheaded because he spoke the truth to Herod. All these apostles, all the apostles were martyred from, that we know of from church history, from church tradition, except for the apostle John. They were all killed. And Jesus says, it's on you. Therefore, verse 50, this generation, and by that he means you, the people standing here this day, the generation in which the Son of Man came. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of God is here. This generation, this moment, you'll be held responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who is killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Now, there's something quite significant in verse 51 when Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Don't think about that from an English speaker's perspective because you might think he's talking about A to Z. A, Abel, Z, Zechariah, all the prophets in between. That's not what he's saying. He's thinking of this from a biblical perspective because where is Abel found in the Bible? Genesis, right? First book of the Bible, from the very beginning of the scriptures. And Zechariah is a man who was put to death in 2 Chronicles 24. And in Jesus' day, and even still today, the Jewish people regard Chronicles as the last book of the Hebrew scriptures. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is from Genesis to Chronicles, or in our ordering from Genesis to Malachi, the whole scriptures, everything that the scriptures say, and all of the prophets through all of the Old Testament, you're going to be held responsible. Why? Why this generation? Why would this generation be held responsible for all of those prophets from the beginning all the way through the whole Old Testament period? You know why? It's because all of those scriptures point to Jesus. Later on in Luke's gospel, after Jesus rises from the dead, he's going to say to those men on the road to Emmaus, you fools and slow of heart, Did you not know that first the Messiah had to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And Luke says that beginning with Moses, Genesis, and going through the the prophets and the Psalms, he explained to them how the scriptures pointed to himself. So what Jesus is saying to these people is Genesis to Chronicles, Genesis to Malachi, if you will, They all point to the coming of Jesus, to the Messiah. And he says, this generation right now, you're living at the climax of all of this, all of this prophecy, all of these scriptures. I did not come to abolish the law. He said in Matthew five, I came to fulfill it. And now right in front of your very eyes, they're being fulfilled and you're missing it. You're ignoring it and you hate me, and you're rejecting me, and you're going to treat me just like all of those other prophets, and you're going to be held accountable for it. This generation will be held responsible for it all. 
It's just like Jesus said earlier, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I would not want to be a Pharisee or a scribe, a teacher of the law who did not believe in Jesus on the day of judgment. That is going to be a harsh day. You're going to be held accountable for it all. In verse 52, Jesus says, Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. That is an incredible, condemnatory, damnable thing to say about a teacher. What did James say? James says, be slow to be teachers because there is great accountability, there's great responsibility if you're a teacher of the word of God. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, woe to you, you teachers, you experts in the law, you hold the key to knowledge or you're supposed to. And instead of going in yourself and leading other people into the room of knowledge, you've closed it up and locked it up and you've locked yourself and everybody else on the outside. What a great weight of responsibility lies on those experts in the law because they hindered other people from coming to the truth. And so Jesus went outside in verse 53. And as you can imagine, Jesus' words did not make him the most popular guest at the table. He left, he went outside, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law followed him out. And it says they began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. They just start launching a barrage of questions, almost like a lawyer in a courtroom, like badgering a witness, just one right after another, just asking question upon question. What's he going to say? Can we find a little thing that we can trap him with and bring him for the, the counsel, the judgment? They wanted to get rid of him. Again, they, they didn't feel guilty by any of the things that Jesus said. They felt offended and insulted and they wanted to get rid of him. They completely rejected Jesus' rebuke. They felt like he was the one who was wrong, not them. And as I said, this spirit of Pharisaism, this spirit of self-righteousness, it still lives, doesn't it? These Pharisees, they're dead and gone. But this spirit of Pharisaism and of self-righteousness, of being critical of others and judging others while ignoring our own hearts, that spirit still lives on. They're religious people. They're churchgoers, but they're critical. They're looking for someone who does not wash their hands before the meal, so to speak. They're usually the most critical about external rules and regulations that are built on top of the Bible's commands. And they never think they are wrong. They're usually more concerned about the sins of others than with their own sins. They spend more time worrying about what other people think about them than what God thinks. They put more effort into external appearance and behavior than into nurturing the internal life of the heart and the soul. Christianity is not a checklist. It's not a list of to-dos or don'ts. It is a love for God and a love for other people. It is 
a relationship with God and others that comes from the inside and then works its way out. Having a relationship with God is more than just going to church, giving in the offering plate, reading the Bible, and acting the right way. Those things are all a part of true Christianity, but a true relationship with God cannot exist without the development of the internal life of the heart. A true relationship with God cannot exist without the development of the internal life of the heart. Do you love God in your heart? Do you read the Bible because you want to read the Bible because you want to know God? Do you come to God in prayer, not to impress other people or to look spiritual, but do you pray because you want to commune with the living God? Do you come to church because you're afraid of what other people will say if you miss church or because you really want to come and worship and sing to the living God? What is in our hearts? A true relationship with God is characterized by love for God and love for other people. It is characterized by mercy to others, forgiveness to others when they wrong you. It is characterized by humility, not pride. It is characterized by self-control, by contentment, not by greed and covetousness. It is characterized by peace, not gossip and strife. It is characterized by unity, not division. A true relationship with God must flow from the inside out. And so let me exhort us all. Let us not all be insulted or offended today, but let us see and examine our own hearts to see what our motives are to see if there's love for God there, if there's love for other people there. And no matter where we are in the development of our spiritual life in our hearts, there is still room to grow, to love God more, to love other people more, to continue to soften our hearts and to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So focus on the inside because that's what really matters. And if you focus on the inside, the outside will be clean too. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you have set your love upon us and that you have made a new covenant with us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that as a part of that new covenant, you said that you would put your law in our hearts and in our minds and that we would know you and we would love you. Father, thank you for the radical transformation that your spirit does in our hearts and minds when he wakes us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. Father, thank you for what you do in our hearts that only you can do. So Lord, nurture within us a love for you that we might love you because you first loved us. Nurture within our hearts a love for other people that demonstrates itself in compassion and mercy and justice. Father, let us not be worried about the external things and about what people might say about how we act or what things that we do, but Lord, let us be mostly concerned about how, about what you think and about standing before the mirror of your word and examining ourselves so that we might put into practice its truth and wisdom. Lord, help us, Father, to nurture and develop our internal life of the heart through your Holy Spirit, whom you have placed there to help us grow into the image of Christ.
And we pray this in his name. Amen.